darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. The half of the word of Heru-Raha called Hur-Pa-Krat and Ra-Hur-Kut. In the Book of the Law, the forms of Ra-Hur-Kut and Hur-Pa-Krat are given as twin halves of the god Heru-Raha, and all this gets packaged into the idea of the hawk-headed Egyptian god Horus. Edward Mason and I will explore this complex set of ideas with special reference to the holy book Liber 418, The Vision and the Voice. What thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law. Love unto will. Welcome back. Thank you. It's been a while, like two weeks. Right? Yeah. <laughs> the requisite two weeks, yes. As specified somewhere in the book of the law, but in highly coded Kabbalistic language. So mm-hmm. nobody but us realizes this. <laughs> okay. um, today I wanted to have a crack at the general topic of Horus, or rather Heru Raha, mm-hmm. because... I always had a huge problem with this one. Um, when I was much younger, I would have sort of considered myself Christian on the Gnostic end of things. And the figure of Jesus is in the Gospels, always saying these things that go beyond the letter of the law. There's always people trying to trap him, rather like the trolls try and entangle you on social media. There's all these guys who know their Torah inside out, and they're throwing these questions at him, and he comes out with these zingers that make them feel stupid and narrow-minded, so, of course, they all hated him. Um, (laughs) So you're saying that these people on the Internet these days are not neither new nor special? No, it's just a very ancient and disreputable tradition of being a pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) And every spiritual tradition of any worth attracts them like flies around the the (laughs) honeypot. But anyway, I felt that there was something of substance in Jesus. And I think it's a bit of a shame that people these days often haven't read at least the New Testament to get some of that sense because they don't realize necessarily the way that the book of the law takes some phrases from the the Gospels and flips them around, and they don't realize perhaps where the Aeon of Osiris had its great moments, which was ideas that are always confrontational and difficult and annoying to anyone who wants to establish a nice, comfortable social structure that they can lean back on and congratulate themselves about. Now, when I came to Horus in Thelema, you know, everyone reads the third chapter of the Book of the Law because that, that, that's his chapter. And I thought something like, you know, oh dear, <laughs> this doesn't seem particularly wise. You know, you've got all these phrases in the, the opening parts of the, uh, you know, I am a God of war and of vengeance. I will deal hardly with them. Conquer, that is enough. And you're thinking, um, Where's the wisdom? Crowley is supposed to comment 
on the book of the law by the wisdom of Rahul Kuit. Mm. And it just seems like a kind of, you know, this is how you should go and beat up your neighbors, lurk, withdraw upon them. Hmm. So I, for a long time, I couldn't really get any traction with Horus. It was a big thing that I sort of pushed aside and thought someday I'll get to it. Where I think it began to crack for me was when I finally started reading The Vision and the Voice for a, more thoroughly than I had the first couple of times I went through. And you get to the final one, the cry of the first Ethia, Lil. And this is basically Huopakrat, the inner, silent, hidden, not visible, but immensely potent inside stuff on Horus. What you're meeting in the third chapter, ostensibly, is the visible object of worship, who is standing there and he's going to, you know, blast all his enemies and, and beat them up, and you know they're going to have to group around him to support him, or you know they're gone. Whereas here Crowley has this extraordinary vision, and he's emitting even as he's giving the words to Victor Newberg to write down that this is such a struggle to translate what he's getting and putting it into words. Um, I came across a quote here that this is but a pale, this is Crowley, this is but a pale reflection in Ruach of the word of the angel of the ether. And another bit he says about verse 34, this passage is quite spurious, a vague and false reflection of the true voice, which was a lyrical sequence of the Atus of Thoth. Hmm. And I think anyone who finally gets a really cool invocation and contacts something beyond their own mental machinery has this experience of being in something scarily beautiful and powerful. And when you write it down in your diary afterwards, you end up with a bunch of cliches that you could have got off the nearest uh, inane <laughs> New Ager website. Um, because when you translate it into the language of the conscious reasoning self, the Ruach, it doesn't have that power. So he's in this ecstatic state and trying to stay in touch with Victor when he's completely overwhelmed with it. You know, he's saying things like, there has never been such peace, such silence, but these are positive things. Singing praises of things eternal amid the flames of first glory. And every note of every song is a fresh flower in the garland of peace. This child danceth not, but it is because he is the soul of the two dances, the right hand and the left hand, and in him they are one dance, the dance without motion. It's easy to mock that stuff when you read it and think, yeah, but obviously this was an overpowering experience that Crowley had. And that is where you start finding the wisdom of Rahul Kuit, which is, of course, the inner wisdom of Pakrat, the voice of the silence. That was where I began to make sense of it, and I began to realize there was something that didn't actually reject what Jesus had been saying so much as take it and go beyond it. I think there is a tendency in Thelema to say, well, we've dispensed with Christianity, and you know, the, the hell with it, the Christians to the lions, as Crowley used to say. Yeah, but that's the religion not the actual initiated spark of the Magus who inaugurated that aeon of Osiris, or at least maybe not inaugurated it, it was already underway, but he embodied it in the stuff he came out with better than anybody else, which is why there was this 
fuel for a genuine Christianity to take, take itself all over the known world long before it got corrupted and the missionaries were just there as an advance guard for the slavers and the commercial people who followed them. So that was where I began to think, okay, I, th I can relate to this Thelema stuff better than I thought. I don't have to go around, you know, beating my, my neighbors. I can also be somebody who doesn't do anything specifically violent, even if Thelema is violent in its destruction of what needs to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're looking at a world around us right now where there's an immense amount being destroyed as we speak. And we're all wondering, you know, how does it resolve? And the only answer is by following the idea of doing our own will, by finding what is our own relationship to, to Horus, both the outer side, which is not going to take any crap from anybody, and the deep inner side, which is ecstatic. That is our only way, realistically, to get anywhere at the present time. Hmm. Even then, it's going to be a rough road. Yeah, I like that you brought up uh, the vision of the voices, sort of giving uh, insight into the Book of the Law. Um, I not too long ago, maybe a year, a uh, year and a half ago, gotten uh, uh, the several volumes of uh, the vision of the voice that somebody put out, where it's the picture, the scans of the original manuscript from the okay. notebooks and that sort of thing. And it's it's on red ink and black, which I thought was kind of interesting. So it, it occurred to me that uh, it's good to think of the vision of the voice as the commentary on the Book of the Law. I don't know if that's a pestilential thing to say or whatnot, but uh, I've kind yeah, of uh, found it really does function that way. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent commentary on the book. Yeah, it, it fills in the details. Um, that's often a problem with... The Gospels. I mean, you know, Jesus arrives and there's this little incident where he goes to the temple and stays in the temple when he's 12. And then he got 20 years of nothing. So people have speculated he went to India. Like, why would an Orthodox Jew be going to India? Come on. He probably <laughs> didn't even know India existed. Or for that uh, matter, where did those feet in ancient times walk upon England? Was the Holy Land? Yes. Um, <laughs> He, he got all over the place. I mean, obviously, he had an agent who just booked him in all over the <laughs> joint, and he gave these you know, tours, uh, you know, performances at every place imaginable. Yeah, you need someone to fill in the detail. I, I remember one particularly drunken evening with a friend of mine who was much more Christian than I was, and we decided that the Beatitudes were, in fact, the punchlines of Jesus's jokes. <laughs> And we spent about two inebriated hours trying to figure out what the jokes had been. <laughs> um, the meek shall inherit the earth. There was already that one out there. The rich are moving on to Mars. That was the, <laughs> the T-shirt you could get 25 years ago. Um, and stuff like that. But you wonder what, what was really happening here. Because there's all these implications that Jesus goes and tells secret stuff. Not implications. They're clear statements. He confides the real goods to his disciples. Mm -hmm. That stuff is not written down. We don't know whether the Apocrypha fairly represented or whether they were just made up by people who you know, wanted to get a few followers on Facebook or the, its equivalent at the time. There's so much that is lost of what was said. 
Yet you have a lot of people who came along who were Christian mystics who were risking getting burned at the stake by expanding this, you know, the, the Meister Eckharts, um, people like that, the, the Rhenish mystics, and others who kept themselves safe because they were working out of a cloister. So the church could always say, well, you have to stay in your cloister and shut up, but you didn't actually get um, tried and persecuted. Whereas if you tried declaring stuff like Giordano Bruno, uh, you know, yes, you you became the barbecue of the, the day one year, one nasty cold day in January in 1600, and uh, that was it. You made a nasty end. You couldn't say too much publicly. These days we say a lot more. I wonder whether the problem today is not that um, people are outraged by it, but they're used to crazy stuff and it goes by them. I think the, the mystery, I think the, the truth of the mystery schools preserves itself because as we're told so many times, you really cannot communicate the truth that you, you discover. You can only, as Crowley says, you express it through the Ruach, which is a very inadequate means of communicating stuff such as what you get in the, these upper ethias, which hardly anyone has ever scried. You know, I mean, I think it was said that you couldn't get beyond the eighth ether unless you were a master of the temple in the AA, mm -hmm. which means that a lot of adepts of AA haven't got anywhere near that. I know I got through half a dozen of them and then started finding that it was just impossible to stay with it. The, the stuff was so far beyond what I could intellectualize. This is the real mystery, the secret, the inner truth, I think, of the third chapter of the book of the law. Figuring it out is next to impossible. You can take bits and pieces. There's the, the salutation we use in, in Reish, unity, uttermost, shown, I adore the might of thy breath. You can use that. You can take certain phrases and make them the foundation of your particular personal work for a time. Uh, but the whole thing, Crowley himself said somewhere in the early 40s that after seven years, he more or less understood the first chapter of the book. Seven years later, he felt he mostly understood the second chapter. He'd overcome his resistance to it. He said, I'm still trying to figure out the third chapter. And this is you know, nearly four decades after he'd received it. Mm. He understood a lot. I think he kept a lot to himself that he may have shared with... Um, some of his more senior students, but he didn't publish it. Uh, and we all have to try and relate to this chapter as a whole. You, you can't really take bits of it. The whole thing sets up something, and if you can look between the lines somehow in the most exalted of mental states, then perhaps you can get some of what Crowley got from the scrying the first ether of the, the Enochian system. Hmm. I wonder if uh, there's a bluntness to the third chapter and just kind of a, I don't care if you get it, this is how it is. That's the sense that I get from it. Um, yes. And uh, I wonder if that's necessary. You know, you mentioned the idea of like uh, um, people trying to be a beacon and that sort of thing, and then in today's world, how that kind of stands out for people like, you know, Ken 
do people get burned at the stake? No, not so much. They do get canceled. They do get mobs coming after them and, and sort of shut down online and that sort of thing. But uh, I feel like there's just so many people able to make up their, you know, there's just a freedom to be able to make your own reality on the internet nowadays that you can take any of this stuff and just make it your own system and then run with it so that, you know, the challenge is the fact that you've just got the sea of noise and finding, you know, the actual truth out of all that is... Uh, damn near impossible it seems like a lot of the time so maybe uh, that there's a ne necessity in that bluntness of the third chapter to just kind of diamond cut through all the noise yeah i, I agree it just it said it screams at you and says this is not going to compromise so don't expect a softening of the message here um even though there are things like, you know, deem not too eagerly to catch the promises, fear not to undergo the curses, ye, even ye know not this meaning all. There are these little hints there that there's something beyond what is said. Now, I think anyone with Thelema has to start forming their own philosophy about it. The only catch with doing that is hanging on to the belief system. The whole thing about initiation and the whole thing that Crowley goes through with the 30 ethers, I mean, he scries 28 of them in North Africa for the vision and the voice. He keeps coming to a further level of seeing the universe and realizing that his previous assumptions, previous ideas aren't adequate to it. Our ideas and beliefs are all Ruark stuff. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you get anywhere without coming up with some sort of formula for yourself that's provisional and gets you through what people call the first order process, you know, the Malkuth up to the threshold of Tefereth. At Tefereth, whatever level you break into it, there is something new that is going to come through. And it will be a fundamental shift for you. If you get the idea at that point that there are many more fundamental shifts along the way, but several basic ones as you break through to each level of initiation, then you're doing fine. Inevitably, you're going to be maybe not wrong, but somewhat misled, somewhat partial in your views right up to that point. And there's even that famous line that Crowley, again, in the, you know, seven or eight years before he died, he writes, what an ass I've been. And you think, well, you're the Marcus of the A or the Marcus, you know, and you suddenly realize you've been an idiot. Um, he just kept having to have deeper realizations and it doesn't stop. It seems like the, the Buddhist adage of, uh, you know, you use your conception, I, I would take it as a conception that you use as a raft to get across the current stream that you're trying to cross or the current river that you're trying to cross. And then once you've gotten to the other side, you can leave the raft behind and move on. That also needs a lot of courage. Um, I, I've often used the term before that and maybe it's because of my own cowardliness, but I, I find myself at certain points thinking, all of that stuff, you've done that now. You're going to have to do something different. And I think, okay, what is it? And the only answer I ever get in the system is, well, you have to go into the next level of darkness. 
<laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> That's so helpful. Um, I don't even know which bit of the darkness to walk into. But that's where Thelema is going to lead you. And yeah, that, that you end up leaving a, a trail of rafts behind you. I agree. And that's difficult because the, the raft is often when you had some really cool experiences, you finally you know, did a, a mega invocation one night and oh my gosh, you know, the light in the room changed and I was seeing and feeling stuff and there was this incredible sacred silence and, you know, and it's like, yeah, okay, we did that. Now let's go on to the next stuff. Um, you need you know, to go on through this process without fear. Where fear is, hadith is not. You're not centered in your own path. You are just looking back and trying to think, you know, can somebody help me, please? And like, no, you have to go into the darkness. But the darkness does lead to this extraordinary vision. I mean, many other things along the way, but the, the vision of the first ether is what, for Crowley at that point, was the culmination of his experience. I think there's stuff that we don't know about Crowley's own visions that came to him in his later years. A lot of what is recorded takes us up through the experience at Chefalu, where he said he went through the, the 110 experience and became an ipsissimus, which, so far as I'm aware, is the only known recorded instance of somebody getting to that grade of you know, attainment. Then there's a lot of stuff that seems secondary, but you realize that all the time operating through him is this extraordinary level of understanding and wisdom, uh, which can seem very crazy and dysfunctional and antisocial if you haven't appreciated just what he'd been through to get to that point where he realized it was going to be about violating his own comfort zone and therefore, the rest of us, we're going to just have to make our own way to that uh, zone as well. You have to, though, as you said, start you know, making your own reality out of all of this. And my only caveat is always, yes, do that, but be prepared for this thing to keep getting upended all along the way. Hmm. Which is where, you know, I think the... The silence here this, of Hoa Parkrat is important. That this thing, I, I, I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> I can't find words anymore than Crowley could of how you say something is coming to you, something is being explained or stated or unveiled within the depths of your mind. And then you're trying to put it into words that will at least make sense to yourself in your own diary. But there are these experiences where just everything is canceled out for a time and some new understanding comes in. Now, then you have to come out of your invocation and go back into your regular life, trying to hang on to the memories of what was being communicated to you. And you've got a few words and little things that um, help you get back into that space. Really, you just have to allow the realization to work itself through you. The voice of the silence will keep talking. And 
you have to have an inner ear to to hear it and not be too caught up on the fact that maybe you could never give anyone a coherent explanation of your own processes of thought and understanding. Hopefully you have a teacher in the system who can say, yeah, I, I've been in the same place, I know what you're talking about, so you don't go completely crazy. But sometimes um, different people, different teachers have their own experience that doesn't relate what, to what you get to. I, I know I've had times when someone has said, look, you've just got to try um, Liber Cadaveris. You know, oh, this is going to be absolutely fabulous. And I personally went through that one two or three times and thought that was kind of like buying some frozen fish and eating it uncooked. It's not fresh tasting like sushi. It <laughs> doesn't have the yumminess of cooked food. It was just kind of, eh. <laughs> then there are other little things that get you, you pick up words that you pick up that Crowley tosses into some of his writings. Like he's always playing around with sound and names, and you pick something out and find, oh my goodness, that's it. Um, I know I was given one peripheral exercise in one of my degrees in working through the temple system that people said, you can do this if you want to. And for two or three difficult years, that was the thing I would do once a week as my high point, because each time there was this feeling of being kicked from the inside that said, got it, you, know, you, you have connected with the core of what this is about. Your only problem here is understanding what it is that's kicking you, hmm. which of course was Horus, but not as it's explicitly written in the book, but rather according to the understanding that was gradually forming for me out of my own experience and my own language to myself about how stuff comes together. How do Harpocrates, or Hurpar Krat, I should say, and uh, Rahur Kuit relate to one another? I mean, they're supposed to be twins and uh, halves of the god Heru Raha. That, I think, is one of those things that the Ruach can't quite express satisfactorily. Um, really, I think one is just simply the, think of an overcoat with a lining, <laughs> you know. The lining is keeping you warm in winter. The waterproof outer shell is keeping the rain off. That together is a coat, but they look very different superficially. So if somebody who had no experience of cold or rainy environments, say somebody from Egypt where it hardly ever rains, would look at this and say, why are you wearing two clothes united in one piece? And you'd have to explain that where you come from, it gets cold and we also have rain at different times. And that this thing is my combined protection. Rahokui kind of gets you moving fast. It's like, okay, now I've got to get something done whether it's completing a series of invocations or meditations, or whether it's cleaning the house because I just have been too lazy the past week. You get it done and it brings you to the point where there's suddenly stillness or silence or an absence of urgency. And at that point you find that Huapakrat was there all along just as if you spend too much time on Huapakrat 
And I, I, I can remember doing this myself at one point when I hadn't worked out my relationship with Horus and thought, well, I, I can just get together with Hor Parkrat and ignore this you know, warmongering extrovert. Uh, and eventually there was this kind of situation of, okay, you can't keep staying here. You have to go and perform some actions in the world, which might have been explaining this better to other people in my temple who were my students or simply getting jobs done that I you know, procrastinated on for ages so that they automatically lead into one another. Mm -hmm. They're just phases, the dark and the light, if you want, the introvert, the extrovert. I think if you try and come up with an explanation of how they relate, you've got another veil of the truth. You, you put something between yourself and the experience. And the only advice you can really give to people is just trust that they are opposite aspects of one composite being. I mean, if Christians could handle God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost all being <laughs> one thing, I, I never met a Christian who could. I've never met. A <laughs> I was going to explain the Trinity to me, the <laughs> but there are there are a few theologians who could put it into coherent words. So it's possible to do it with three. This is only two. Come on, <laughs> this is discount religion. We we can handle this. <laughs> So I wouldn't try too hard to relate it. I'd try and experience that thing of getting really into one side and seeing how the other comes through. Then you will have a personal experience that will give you the foundation of an understanding. Either way, though, both these phases, these facets, go beyond the, the comfortable human world. All of this nasty stuff or apparent nasty stuff in the third chapter um, you know, this, I'm looking at the verse right now that I've got on the screen about the scarlet woman, but let her raise herself in pride, let her follow me in my way, let her work the work of wickedness, let her kill her heart, let her be loud and adulterous. Yes, 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 yes. She's got to go that way. That, that's her road because she has to break out from moralistic constraints. When she has done this, there is an attainment which has the opposite character. Um, my old teacher used to say often, you know, people would say, oh, we're, we're a, a, a solar phallic cult in Thelema. And his answer was yes, right up to Tefereth. When you have actually attained to the solar reality in Tefereth, suddenly it's like, oh, the opposite is there because you're looking not to the sun, you've got to the inner sun, you're now looking out to the stars and the night sky, which is at the exact opposite experience and is much more profound and is much more disturbing, mm -hmm. at least initially. But you know, do what you gotta do, enact it, invoke it, worship it, Play around with it. Don't be afraid that you'll offend its feelings. <laughs> and see what happens when you finally do, even through maybe just saying Liberesh, which is a Rahokuit ritual. You know, that's the visible sun you're talking about. Even at the midnight one, you know, midnight resh, you're still kind of dealing largely with a prayer from Rahokuit's chapter of the book and a very positive expression of the sun at midnight. 
once you kick in with that, you're going to find that um, Huapa Krat was hanging around in the background all the time. Hmm. But don't ask me to give you a description of what that's like. You have to go in and experience it. And then it begins to click and you eventually stop worrying about it, except when people ask you to explain <laughs> awkward <laughs> concepts and you just run out of good words to you. Well, we should have a synod over it and then uh, you know, decide who to kill who's got the wrong idea about it. That's. <laughs> I think we should have a synod of Toronto and we can come out with some nice doctrinal formulations that everybody has to follow. Yeah. <laughs> except for, of course, everybody else. So we can choose who to hate. <laughs> exactly, yes. That's what it's all about. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Watch for the follow-up episode on The God Horus. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.